Well, for those of you uh, for whom school realities affect the way your life unfolds on a daily basis, uh, I don't know how your transition has been over the last couple weeks. In our house, there's been a, a lot of change in the month of September. We're, we're three weeks into the school year now, and all six of us are now back in class and doing homework and whatever. And it's been a lot of transition, but I would say the, the biggest and hardest transition in our family this fall was for our youngest, Briley who last year graduated from uh, kindergarten and so went to a brand new school uh, this fall, Jeanne Sauvé, to do French immersion education along with her three older sisters, which is nice because now they're all on the same bus and it simplifies our life a little bit, but it certainly didn't simplify her life. Uh, In kindergarten, over those two years, she formed a really amazing circle of five girls that were just super tight and of those five girls, only one of them decided that she was going to go to Jeanne Sauvé for French immersion um, education, which really saddened Bryce. She's going to, you know, miss her, seeing her friends every day and so on. But our mantra for the summer was, at least Emma will be there. At least Emma will be there. And Bryce was like, I can't wait until school starts, and I'm going to go to school every day with Emma and whatever. The morning of the very first day of class, we get a text from Emma's mom that says her anxiety has been building over the course of the summer. She is totally in a panic about going to Jeanne Sauvé. We can't do it. We're not sending her. We're sending her back to Oak Ridge. We didn't even have the heart to tell Bri. We just put her on the bus and sent her. And when we got home, she said, oh, Emma wasn't there today. And we said, no, honey, sit down. We got something to talk about. We said, Emma's not coming. And it was just heartbreaking, heartbreaking. She, for the next couple nights, cried herself to sleep every night saying, I want to go back to Oak Ridge. I want to go back to where my friends are. She'd come home from school, uh, you know, each day. And we'd say, who did you play with today? Nobody. I don't have any friends where I am. And we said, well, you know, sisters, go find Bri and play with her. And So then, who would you play with today? Just my sisters. No one would play with I don't have any friends. And there were some kids from Southridge at school who were trying uh, to include her, which we discovered after the fact. But it was, she was just so devastated that her friends were there. And it was, it was devastating to watch uh, your daughter get excluded from being able to participate. We've lived through it before. I, we have another daughter who a couple years ago went almost an entire school year without a single invitation to a birthday party. She would cry about it during the year. Why does nobody want me? And then she invited kids to her birthday party and you know invited 10 and three showed up. And I mean, it just breaks your heart as a parent to see the devastation of watching your kids get excluded um, from places where you just wish they'd be loved and embraced. As I read the text this week in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 13, you can turn there if you have a Bible or a Bible app or whatever. I began to wonder if that's not exactly how God feels sometimes uh, when he looks at the church. So this is the second week of a series that we're in called Last Place, and Really, the essence, the heart of the series, as we looked at last week, was about Jesus saying, why don't we just let go of this propensity that we have as human beings 
to categorize each other, to shove each other into boxes that then come with the ranking system whereby we judge each other and organize each other into a social hierarchy so that we in our insecurity can feel better about ourselves because we're more important or, or better or bigger or whatever than somebody who's less important. We talked about the ways that we rank each other by gender, the way we rank each other by marital status, the way we rank each other by spiritual maturity and theology and the way we live out our faith and by health and wealth and age and race and ethnicity and sexual orientation, all the ways that we label and brand each other and in order to try and determine where I fit in the social argument, in order to feel like I'm important. And the whole idea of last place, this series, is really about two themes. Number one, why don't we give up on the ranking systems? How about we just let that go? And number two, if we're going to opt for a place to rank ourselves, why not instead of trying to race to the top to finish in first place, why don't we race to the bottom and be pride ourselves in finishing in last place, being the bottom of the totem pole and giving our lives to just serving everybody else who's above us in the hierarchy. Because that's the heart of Jesus. And that's the heart that emerges in the text that we're going to look at today. I think the Apostle Paul, I I was going to mention this. The Apostle Paul, I feel like, captures the spirit of what it is that Jesus is trying to get across in this series. In, In Galatians 3 verse 26, it says, So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all who have clothed, who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Paul says, listen, there are, there are no men and women. There are no, I mean, those are part of your identity, right? Your ethnicity, your marital status, your socioeconomic status, whatever. It's all part of who God has created you to be. But Paul says, within the community of faith, none of that stuff matters. Those distinctions are irrelevant. Embrace them as a part of who you are. But that doesn't determine how God treats us. It doesn't determine how we treat each other, because we're all the children of God. Anybody who's been baptized into the church has just been embraced and scooped up by God as a part of his family, and that's just the deal. And that's what this series is all about. And we turn to Matthew 19, starting verse 13, where it says this, Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. For the second time in a row, this story begins with somebody else who initiates a conversation or, or an incident with Jesus. Last week it was the religious leaders. This week it's these parents who have brought their kids to Jesus because he want, they want him to, to put his hands on their head or their shoulders and to pray for God's blessing in their life. It was a pretty standard thing in Judaism to get older men to bless uh, younger children, especially um, male children, but uh, in the Old Testament, you see it all the time, where you see parents putting, laying their hands on their male offspring and blessing them, kind of usually at the end of their life as a way of passing the torch and, and, and praying that their child will step into the destiny that God has for them, to the life that God wants for them. By the time Jesus uh, was alive, the rabbis, what would people would do in that culture is they would take their 12 or 13 year old son down to the holy city of Jerusalem to get their son blessed by the elders there who would put their hands on, the, on their son's head or shoulders and pray a blessing to say, you are now worthy to study the scriptures and to uh, live the life that God is inviting you 
into. It happened to Jesus when he was 12. It happened to Jesus when he was a baby. His parents took him to the, the temple to get him circumcised. And, um, and a, there's an elderly man there who loved God. And he scooped Jesus up in his arms and just prayed this blessing on his life. It, it happens, frankly, in our community. That whenever somebody has a baby, the opportunity exists for them to uh, call together their life group and some friends and families into their home or wherever and to get someone from our family ministry to come and to join their gathering and to just pray for them, to pray for them as parents that they would raise their home, in, they raise their child in a home that's filled with the love of God and with the love of people and pray for the child that the child grow up to be the kind of person who chooses to follow Jesus and lives that out in a life of love and so on. I mean, there's just something to having children blessed, prayed for, and so on. Unless you're one of Jesus' disciples. The end of Matthew 19, 13, it says, but the disciples rebuked them. They rebuked the parents for bringing the kids to be blessed by Jesus. It's an interesting word, the choice, rebuked. It's uh, in the Greek word, literally means to kind of tell somebody off. Um, there's an implication of punishment. It's kind of verbal punishment. It's exactly what we do to our kids when they aren't doing what we're supposed to be doing. We pull them aside and we give them the speech, right? You give them the lecture. You, you sort of verbally let them know that they have stepped outside the boundaries and they're expected to step back in line. And that's exactly what the disciples were doing to these parents. It's interesting that the role that the disciples took in relation to the parents. It's a role of authority, right? You can only rebuke somebody that you have authority over. The disciples were living in a world where because of their relationship with Jesus, because they, who they were in relationship with this famous rabbi and whatever, that that gave them some sense of authority over these parents who were bringing their kids. And the authority that they assumed was the authority to be the gatekeepers, about who was allowed to be in the presence of Jesus. Right? That's what they were doing. They were, they were deciding. who get, They were like Jesus' PR team granting interviews to the media. Yes, you can have an interview. No, you don't get one. And they are the ones who are, who are the gatekeepers who are either opening the doors or blocking access to Jesus' presence. And in this particular instance, with the parents bringing the kids, they said, no, your kid is not allowed in the presence of of Jesus. And the reason is simple. That in the ancient world, kids just weren't important enough to merit the opportunity to be in the presence of a person like Jesus. That's, I mean, in the ancient world, kids were loved by parents and family members, just like in every culture, everywhere throughout history. But they weren't particularly valued in culture, which is weird for us to process from the 21st century, where kids play such an enormous role in our culture. Youth is valued and the role of young children. We focus an extraordinary amount of energy in developing the children and, and um, preserving their value, which is actually the result of Christianity, I think, in world history because children were never valued prior to the time of Jesus, the way Jesus valued them. But, but they, had, they were not valued in society in part because of the high mortality rate Right? Kids were dying all the time. And so in a culture with limited resources, why would you invest in someone who might be not here a year from now? So kind of this attitude was, well, prove that you're going to live. And if you live long enough, well, then we'll start to consider you somebody. 
but it was also because of their value for productivity, right? In a poor society like that, that kind of always lives on the brink of starvation, you were valued according to what you could contribute to the general well-being. And kids don't contribute anything. And if you have kids, I expect to hear an amen. Because whether it's like Saturday chores or paying the mortgage or whatever, your kids don't contribute nothing, right? So they were valued at that level of non-contributors. They were non-people with zero status. In fact, in Greek, the word for child, young child, is exactly the same word as the word for slave. You are valuable to me only in your ability to be productive. The disciples, the parents bring these children and the disciples throw up the hand, the the stop sign, and they say, forget it. Your kids can't go see Jesus because they're not important enough. They don't matter enough. They're not valuable enough. And if Jesus was to waste his time, remember, we're talking about the future king of the Jews, the Messiah that God has sent in the world. We're on a mission to go to Jerusalem. How could you think that Jesus would waste his time paying attention to somebody like your kids? It would be beneath him. And what saddens me sometimes is that I think we in the church behave in the same way towards people, right? It comes right out of what we were talking about last week, this propensity that we have to rank and rate people, to, to judge people and slot them into a social hierarchy so that based on our gender, based on our marital status, based on our spiritual maturity, based on our theology, based on our discipleship, based on our longevity in the community, based on our wealth or health or age or race or ethnicity or sexual orientation or whatever it is, based on whatever, I kind of feel like I am of a certain standing in the community. I have a certain measure of importance in the community of faith. And and the point of this story, I think, is to think about the ways in which that kind of judging doesn't just affect somebody at the level of identity when we judge somebody or relationship. It actually has a spiritual impact on them because the impulse, when you're the kind of person who's trying in your own security to make yourself feel like you're somebody, the impulse that you have is to then become the judge of everybody else in a way that actually pushes them away from Jesus. Right? We become gatekeepers in the community. We decide that we're the final arbiters of who matters to God and who doesn't. I'll, I'll tell you a story on the condition that you understand that this story is ex- extremely rare in our community, but it happened. And it perfectly captures the heart of what I'm talking about. There was a, an incident a number of years ago where in our Glenridge location, one of the our uh, friends who were living with us in the homeless shelter decided one Sunday morning that they wanted to attend the worship service and join us in you know auditoriums like this across our three locations and so on. So they walked down the hall and sat down in the auditorium ready to participate in the worship service. And they were only there a couple minutes when um, somebody else who was sitting nearby actually got up out of their chair and walked to the back of the auditorium looking to get the attention of an usher so that the usher could have the homeless person removed from the service because it smelled like he hadn't showered. I mean, just think about this. That there was somebody 
who decided based on their own sense of standing in the community that it was their privilege and responsibility to have somebody removed from worship because they didn't meet some minimum standard of hygiene in order to be acceptable in the presence of Jesus. Or maybe it was just somebody who made this parishioner uncomfortable that uh, they make me uncomfortable, so I want them removed from worship. Now, you need to understand this kind of incident is extremely rare in our community and that I think as challenging as it can be for those who live with us and for those who worship among us to together form relationships with each other, I think our church has done an amazing job in, in learning how to love each other in mutually beneficial, mutually respectful, mutually edifying, mutually submissive friendships that have developed over the course of time. And so I hope nobody hears me suggesting this is the way that it is in our community. And I hope that anybody who's lived with us in the past or uh, lives with us presently, I hope nobody feels like that's the way people look at you among us. Because it's not. But it breaks my heart to think that that kind of attitude still infiltrates churches. And it does all over the place. The church, you know, capital C, has sent the message to the LGBT community. You're just not welcome here. You are not welcome in the presence of Jesus. And believe me, they've gotten the message. Think about that Muslim family that moved in on the end of your street. And because of, you know, the fear that some of us live with, because of the way that the news media portrays radical Islamic terrorism. We're afraid of the Muslim community. And now we won't even talk to that family. And in it, by definition, we've cut them off from ever being able to experience the presence of God in Jesus Christ. We do it to people that we disagree with, either theologically disagree with or we disagree with how they're living out their discipleship that we just kind of say, well, you know what? There's just no way that God could approve of somebody who disagrees with me. And so we break relationship with that person. Um, we do it in the way that we form our communities, our friendship circles, our life groups, and so on, that we sort of cluster with people who fit our little tribe, our age and our stage and our ethnicity and, and our um, you know, socioeconomic status. We just form these little communities of people who largely look exactly like us, marital status and everything. And those who don't exactly fit the mold kind of get brushed off to the side. People who make us uncomfortable because they're dealing with stuff that we just don't understand like mental illness. Um, there's so many ways in which after slapping labels on each other and categorizing each other, we pick and choose who we think is worthy of the presence of God. We make ourselves the gatekeepers of who gets to gain entrance into the presence of God. We exclude people that we feel don't. And Jesus would have none of it. In verse 14, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Jesus 
sees the disciples, you know, rebuking these parents, linking arms, kind of forming a wall, blocking access to Jesus, pushing people away. And I can imagine Jesus just sort of walking over and rolling his eyes and pushing his disciples out of the way and then getting down on one knee and saying to the kids, come, come, come. And they come running over to Jesus. And when, when, the, uh, when Mark tells a story in the gospel according to Mark, it says that he wrapped his arms around them. He took them into his arms. He embraced them and he prayed for them and he blessed them. He became the agent of God's loving goodness pouring into their lives through prayer. And so Jesus just sort of, he takes these children who have been pushed aside by everybody else, who've been pushed down by, excuse me, by all the rest of society, and he just elevates them up. And he says, no, you matter to me. He doesn't just actually embrace them. He, he lifts them up actually above the disciples. He says to the disciples, don't hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. He says, not only should these people not be excluded, these little children, these little children should actually be held up as a role model, as the example of exactly the kind of person that I'm looking for in the community of faith. You're the ones, you're the role models, you're what it looks like. Because they were people of no status. They had no social standing and just did not care. The children, when Jesus says, The kingdom belongs to children like this, to people who are like these children. What he means is the kingdom of heaven belongs to people who don't play games of status and standing and ranking and judging and excluding. You ever watch a child play? They don't exclude anybody. Right? It doesn't matter. Ethnicity, age, like it just doesn't matter. You like red cars? I like red cars. Let's be best friends. Jesus says that's what it looks like to not care. And actually in embracing and elevating these children, Jesus is actually rebuking his disciples. They were rebuking the parents and now Jesus rebukes them. He rebukes them for their attitude about themselves. This is Jesus' way of saying, who do you think you are? Who made you the gatekeeper to to access to my presence? Who... Who said that I needed you to be the filter and the screen to make sure that the wrong people didn't, you know, end up in my presence? He says, you've got it wrong. You, you're blocking access because you think you're so important. You think because your proximity to me that you're exactly the kind of people that, you know, should be held up as a role model and example for what the kingdom of God looks like. No, you should be more like them. You should be more humble. You should be less, you know, puffing your chest out less. Less trying to be the big man on campus. You should be humble and not care. He, he, he rebukes them about, his, about their attitude to themselves and he rebukes them about their attitude towards the kids. He says, don't hinder them. What are you doing getting in their way? People want to come to me. Why are you stopping them? Why don't instead, why don't you engage in actually helping them get to me? This is, I think, the heart of this story. Is an invitation of Jesus to make two radical shifts in the way that we think. One that comes out of the text from last week that is evident again this week. And then 
the implication of that. I think Jesus in this story is inviting us to choose humility. To stop using all of these things, right? The wealth and health and age and stage and longevity in the community of faith and spiritual maturity. Stop using all these things as ways of ranking and categorizing and judging each other as though these are the things that Jesus looks to to figure out who's the most important in the kingdom, who's the most significant, who matters the most, who's the biggest. Right? Jesus doesn't look to any of that stuff when he's trying to figure out who matters the most in the kingdom. Jesus looks to one criteria, and that's the criteria of humility. In eight, chapter 18, verse 3, Jeff preached on this in the fall. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You want to be the greatest? Be the humblest. Be the one in humility knows in the depths of your spirit that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you've got nothing to offer to God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that a life of faith begins with the moment when you realize, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The life of faith begins the very moment you realize you have nothing of value to offer to God and that you were entirely dependent on God's mercy and grace to accept you and embrace you and transform you. That's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The greatest is the one that knows that whatever standing they have in God's eyes, they only have because God loves them as his children. That's the only, that's the thing of value we bring to God. I am accepting the fact that you love me as your children. And since God loves us as his children, even though we're all different, just like my kids are all different, even though we're all different, God loves us like children exactly the same. And if God loves us all exactly the same, then we're probably all exactly the same in the eyes of God. There is no higher or lower. There's no more or less. There's no more significant or less significant, more important or less important or whatever. There is no ranking system in the kingdom because we're all here simply based on the mercy and grace of God. And once that sinks in, once we've chosen humility instead of trying to be something, then the second action step seems natural, and that is to choose inclusivity. Right? It's pride that says, you don't belong. It's pride that says, God doesn't want you in his presence. It's pride that excludes people. Humility, knowing that we are nothing except the recipients of God's mercy and grace. Humility has no choice but to respond by saying, welcome, please come. And as we journey together, maybe we can help each other find this life that God has invited us into. That's what humility does. Humility responds the way Jesus responded to these children. Which is four things as I read it. Jesus made space. He made room for them. Because at one level the disciples are correct. Jesus is the future king of Israel. He's the Messiah. And is on a fairly important mission. To go to Jerusalem and to die for the sins of the world. Which kind of matters in the grand scheme of things. Um, And yet Jesus wasn't so important. And wasn't so busy. And wasn't so exclusive. And wasn't so um, enamored with importance and significance, whatever, to not make space for the kids. Jesus said, I've got nothing more important to do right now than to welcome you into my heart and into my life, into my space. Jesus made space for the people that the disciples wanted to exclude, which leads me to this question for you, for me, for all of us. 
who do you, have you been excluding that you need to make space for in your home, in your heart, in your life group, in your life? He made space. He affirmed them. Right? The disciples were judging the kids negatively, saying, you've got nothing of value to add. Jesus has a completely different perspective on it. Jesus' perspective is that they, people should be more like these kids. Jesus was able to see value in these children that no one else was able to see. Jesus was able to see the image of God in them that no one else had been able to see. Which leads to this question, who have you been tempted to push away and exclude? And how could God open your eyes so that you can see the value in them? You can see the image of God in them. To the point where you can look at them and say, you have so much to teach me about what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus made space, he affirmed them, he embraced them. He embraced them. In Mark, it literally says, he wrapped his arms around them. He communicated to them everything that can only be communicated by a hug. You matter, you're seen, you're valid, you're validated, you're safe, you're protected, you're mine. I love you. Who have you been tempted to exclude? You need to start sending some of those messages to. Fourthly, Jesus became the agent of God's blessing in their life. He prayed for them and he blessed them. He asked God to pour his merciful, loving goodness in their lives. He prayed for good things to happen to them. He prayed for good things to come of them, for God to do good things in them and for God to do good things through them. Who do you need to become an agent of blessing for? A channel of God's loving goodness and mercy. Because I'm convinced, friends, that as hard as this September has been for me to watch my kids go through this transition, especially the one who's been excluded, I feel like that's God's heart for the people that we tend to push to the outside. The people whose access to Jesus we block because for whatever reason we have deemed them unworthy to be in the presence of God. And I just pray that our church can become the kind of community where all the kids are loved and embraced and accepted, where all of us, regardless of our standing and status, regardless of the way we've judged ourselves or others have judged us, where everyone feels like they have a place where they belong. Let's pray together. Father, we celebrate this morning your love for us. You don't judge us, you don't rank us, it says you love the world so much that you sent your son. You just love us indiscriminately. You love us shamelessly. You just love us extravagantly and generously. All of us the same, exactly who we are. And I pray that we would learn to drink deeply of that love. 
that Jesus puts on display in this story for the people that everybody else says has, have no value, who don't deserve to be loved, who don't deserve to be included in the presence of God. And I pray, Jesus, that as we drink deeply of that love, that it would become the kind of love that just spills out of our lives, that we would just be done with the games of judging and ranking and trying to be all important or whatever. And we would just learn to love as extravagantly and as shamelessly and as generously and as indiscriminately as you love, where all your kids have a place where they belong. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.